Shut up and sit down. everyone and welcome to the podcast. Um, tonight's topic is we're going to do a topic on fanon versus canon featuring the Sentinel um, for our Year of the Sentinel um, challenge on Rough Trade. <clears throat> so next year, and I've already announced them, um, uh, we're doing um, Sentinel challenges all year long. Uh, and if you go over to Rough Trade and look at the announcements page, um, you can see um, all of the challenges for next year. Um, yeah, 2020. <clears throat> if you go over to, and I'm, I'm going to put a, a link up here for the, those of you guys in the chat room. But if you, if you go to Rough Trade, click on all the resources, and then click on announcements, you can see the. Um, the challenges that, like, we have the Divergent Path in November, and then I have all the challenges for 2020 up as well um, on um, Rift Trade. And one of the more interesting things I think about the um, the Sentinel fandom is how huge the fanon is. And that you will often see fanon-centric epi- um, stories over canon-centric episodes. Um, to a an immense degree. Yeah, I think that the fandom. It was weird because in the early days of the fandom, it was like you could almost feel people like feeling constrained by the bounds of canon, but mm-hmm. trying to stick with to stay within it. So like they were just trying to tease at guide gifts and try to flesh out what that might be, but basically staying in the canon box. And people kind of started inching out of the box. You could just kind of like feel the box like getting ready to burst, right? And then once people started just really went outside, went went all for all in on like the Sentinel mythology and Sentinels are known universe kind of thing. Uh, it's just like exploded. It, it's as a, as a trope. I don't know if I've ever seen a trope take off like that because people are like, yes, that's what we want. <laughs> and I want to apply it to every fandom I write in. Every single one. <laughs> every single one. Um, I actually read a lot of Sentinel, um, I don't even know how I got into the Sentinel fandom, to be perfectly honest. Like, it might have been a crossover with Stargate, maybe, um, um, Dasha? Dasha. Rodney was a Sentinel. Imperfections? Is that it? I don't remember. I don't think I've read that one. As a saying, yeah. Um, yeah, it was like there was um, Rodney and John and Blair and 
Jim and something else. And I was, uh, I was reading Stargate at the time. My, you know, when I re-entered fandom, it was about Stargate, um, Atlantis specifically. Um, but, uh, I think it was Dasha that kind of like, and I, and then I meandered, um, into, um, the Sentinel fandom. Um, and I was there, uh, Candy Apple, I mean, is that her name Candy Apple? I think so. Um, I was all in. I was all in. I'd never watched a single episode of the show. I was all in. I read a whole bunch. And, um, a lot of the ones I were reading in the beginning were, um, on 352 Prospect Place, the the website, and they were canon-centric. And then I got into that Sentinels Are Known, and it was like, the world opened up. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, my brain just exploded. Let me just apply <laughs> that to everything. But I had already seen that trope first because I, like I said, I was reading Dasha's Imperfections. Um, so I was already there. But when I kind of dipped in and I, and I was really focused on learning a lot about the canon of the show. Um, so it was like, and then I moved back into Stargate. For a reason, and I'm not going to spend this whole podcast bitching about that thing again. So we're just going to skip over that part. I wrote The Awakening, then I watched the first season of The Sentinel, <laughs> and then I moved, and then I moved back to Stargate. And um, that's when I thought, you know what? I really, I really don't see Rodney as The Sentinel. I mean, I can read it and enjoy it, but I can't write it. I can't write it. And so I went looking for a um, John is the Sentinel and I found The Unlikely and the Unwilling by Lady Holder. And I was like, yes, this, this is what I want. This woman is giving me what I want. And it would be quite a while before I would associate that fic with the same person who had actually baited the awakening for me. Because <laughs> I went back to read it again and I was like, holy shit, that's my beta. <laughs> and The Unlikely and the Unwilling by Lady Holder is the inspiration for the Sentinels of Atlantis. Because I was like, this this is what I want. This is what I want. Yeah, you're you're welcome, fandom, on behalf of Lady Holder. Um it so yeah, I mean it was just like this 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 is what I want. This this is this is how I want it. And it was like, um, And to this day, I cannot put Rodney in the role of the Sentinel. Or, or specifically McKay, because I um, one of the ones we're doing next year is a trope layer where you layer another big trope over the Sentinel. And I'm thinking of doing a Rule 63. I tried to make McKay the Sentinel as um, um, a uh, as a woman. And I was like, no, <laughs> that just doesn't work for me because John is the Sentinel. John's the Sentinel. And it's just like, it's, it's a stumbling block. And it's not about alpha or beta or, um, it's not about like submission versus dominance. I don't consider the role of a Sentinel an alpha role or a 
or the role of someone who is a dominant person. Um, I consider the role of a sentinel more like a hunter. And I just don't see Rodney in that role. Yeah. The the hunter-warrior role. Well, they called, I mean, in the canon, they called the Sentinels Watchmen. And yeah. um, I, it just, it, that, that's more John to me than it is. Which is why there's some characters I've, I'm very flexible about who can be the Sentinel um, or guide, one or the other. I, I can see them both ways. But there are some characters where I just have a, a distinct headcanon about them. It's like, this character is a Sentinel or this character is a guide. And I just don't. And sometimes, and I've tried a lot. Of there's, you know, there's always the permutation that's the opposite of what my headcanon is. And I've tried reading stories that have it different, have it, you know, they'll have a character. Um, like I can see Tony as a as a guide or a sentinel because the first stories I actually read in the Sentinel the crossover with NCIS, which I'm pretty sure the first NCIS story I read was the Sentinel crossover because it wasn't. I didn't see what the pairing was in the fandom. I didn't go, oh. Gibbs and Tony. It, but I watched the show. I didn't just go, oh. Um, but so the first thing I read in NCIS, I'm pretty sure, was a Sentinel story because I, I Sentinel crossovers were like my drug for a while. You know, I was like, it's always my happy place. It'd be perfectly right. honest. It's like somebody, you know, I once I found out about Sentinel, you know, Sentinel fusions, I was like, I got to have the more of that. And I would read fandoms that I would never touch otherwise. That I had he had never read a single work in if it was Sentinel, and um, so. Do you remember what what was called? If you mean the NCIS stories, I can try to find them. They might still be out there. But um, Tony, um, in in those early, all the early stories I found, Tony was a sentinel, and Gibbs was the guide. Now I didn't have a problem with Tony being a sentinel, but Gibbs being the guide only worked for me really in one story, and it was where, um, and it was it was brought up how improbable it seemed. Anyway, the author lampshaded it, and Blair discussed it and said basically that um, that Blair is an anomaly as far as guides go. That most guides are older and have more experience, and um, that that Blair was was aberrant in that way, that most guys were more like Gibbs. And so from that, she tried to lampshade it from that perspective. And so like, it kind of helped with my suspension of disbelief. But fundamentally, I still, and I, you know, I don't even, I could see Gibbs as mundane or a sentinel, but I just don't, it doesn't gel with me that he'd be a guy. He just has, it just doesn't I work. Mean, I, I mean, I can see that rationale actually working because in canon, the only other um, example we see of a god is, what's his name? In, in, Inchinata and Inchata. Inca I always say Incacha. In Chaka? In Chaka. In Chaka. In Chaka. And so, I mean, I think it was good lamp shading. It just it would have worked better on a character who wasn't Gibbs. Uh, but it was it was good lamp shading to try to address the you know that because but, but to me it wasn't Gibbs age that was that was the problem. But it's still, you know. But anyway, um, but then I read Tony as a guide, and for that, in that pairing, you know, it 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 works. You know, it worked it worked better with Tony as the guide. Um, and the reason I write Tony as a guide, I've talked about this on other podcasts. The reason I write Tony as a guide more often than I write him as a sentinel is because a lot of my preferred pairings for him are with people that I don't see being guides at all, like Steve McGarrett or um, Ian Edgerton 
uh, Jack O'Neill. Um, now, I could probably finagle Steve into a guide, maybe, but there is no fucking way, none, that I could put Ian Edgerton in that role. Yeah, no. 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 Um, now, see, I could see Tony Stark as a guide or a sentinel, but I'm more inclined to write him as a guide when I pair him with Tony Dinozo. I'm doing Tony Squared because um, it gives me an opportunity to write Tony as a Sentinel. Tony Dinozo as a Sentinel, which is something that, you know, with most of my other ships, I don't really get to do. So. But again, I see a lot of times people assigning um, the role of Sentinel um, based on some kind of dominance dynamic. And I think that's a mistake. N yeah i agree absolutely it's just because it's not it, it, equating equating sentinel with dom and guide with sub it to me it harkens back to that the terrible slave trope that developed in the in the sentinel fandom um and i think maybe that mentality is the reason that slave trope took off that but then they tried to put um blair into a role of submissive female because not just submissive, but there was an active movement in that fandom to subvert Blair's masculinity. Yeah, it was really terrible. So I think because people put that on Blair, um, I don't know. I mean, there was a lot of time, you know, this we've talked about this in another podcast, too, is there was... Um, and sometimes still is an attempt to make one partner in a, a slash pairing the woman, quote unquote. And it's, it's, and they equate womanly traits with being the submissive partner. It's really like deeply misogynistic. Um, on, it, it's deeply misogynistic that, that the, the way they portray women, uh, the female side of the partnership, but it's also terribly inaccurate to assume that <laughs> to to go to there's one part one one partner in a gay relationship is female, um, as opposed to it's two men, you know. So it um, so you've got those things kind of like we're kind of like percolating or out there in fandom and in and especially in the slash community, and then you get you know. Blair and Jim, the, the actors Garrett and uh, um, uh, Richard Burgey both had very they had very good chemistry on screen together, which those of you who haven't seen the show um, wouldn't know that. But they did have really good chemistry with one another, and and they were and they were very handsy with each other, um, especially Jim, who was very physical with Blair. So. That, that that pairing, that that fandom would go towards a major slash ship was not at all a surprise. It, it really wasn't, you know, I mean, it's just, it was like, it was like made for slash. And then you have a lot of deeply seated homophobia in, in certain groups of fan fiction writers at that time. And they would have to, so they, they'd see the chemistry and they'd say things in forums like, oh, I wish this, just too glad one of them's not female so I could write them. And so what they did is they developed like these sad people. <laughs> right. And so what they did is they wrote, they wrote these platonic relationships, this platonic sentinel guy relationship, which I don't have a problem with, but then they did ugly things with it. 
like they started attacking on slavery. And so there was just all of these different things that kind of converged um, that, that existed in other parts of fandom as well, right? It wasn't like any of these individual behaviors were, were unique to the Sentinel fandom, but it all kind of converged into this real ugly, ugliness that was centered around Blair, which if they were in a sexual relationship, sometimes they were trying to make him um, the submissive partner or, or, you know, this is where the misogyny came in, kind of making him the female, more female partner and therefore the submissive partner or just, just all this ugliness. And then you have the slave trope that gets bred in and it just was like, wow, what are they doing? And so out of that, even people who don't like that, even people who kind of went, no, 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 no. And they noped out of those stories. I think they still kind of, it's in their head because these kinds of things stick with you that the guide is the submissive part partner in the relationship, which is, you know, whatever. If they're the guide, how can they be the submissive one? I mean, if you want to like, look at, you know, how, you know, it just, it just makes sense. So, but I mean, if you want to write a submissive dynamic with the guide set, well, that's fine. But just to assume that the guide is going to be submissive, I think that you should at least take a look at it and decide what you want to do with that. But, and so the consequences if they, of the assumption of the guide being submissive is that they then look at which character they could see <laughs> taking it up the ass in a pairing. And therefore that character would be the one who would be the guide. And it just, it's all entrenched in such ugliness that it's really hard to, when I see the kind of the threads of that in a story, I just have to nope right out. I'm like, oh, uh, Assuming that the person who's taking it up the ass is the feminine character is both misogyny and I mean, I guess the word is homophobia, but I think we need a new word because I don't know. I don't know. It's just terrible. Kyle's in there making words up. Because it is about assuming that women are weak and inferior um, and assigning that role to the bottom of a gay sex pairing, which is disgusting. Mm -hmm. And the assumption that anybody who allows themselves to be penetrated is, in fact, weak. Which is just misogyny. And considering a lot of women are riding or were riding this shit. It's internalized misogyny, which is like, girl, wake up. Well, I see a lot of internalized misogyny from women in fandom. It's really terrible. Like saying things like they don't want to read any het sex in stories because, ooh, gross. It's like, it's, come isn't, on now. <laughs> isn't, it, it's not, and from, and this is mostly straight women, right? So I'm like, isn't that the sex that you have? But okay, you know, whatever. Um. Yeah, head sex. So I don't know. It, it's just it was. It, so we all got. This was the days of fandom. This stuff all came up when fandom was very siloed. You know, even within a fandom, you got in your you got in your bucket and you stayed there. Um, if you were a slash writer, you were a slash writer. You did not have graphic head sex on your story. You know, this was this was the way things were back then. And um, I think some people still run around with that mentality, even though we've we've moved on. Thank fuck. I, you know, I'm not gonna let anybody put me in a corner. You can't put baby in a corner. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but also, don't call her baby. 
I don't know you like that. <laughs> but I, I think that that I think it was a breath of fresh air when this when the when the when the sentinel the sentinels are guide sentinels are in guides are known trope branch out of the sentinel um, for fandom because it just it I think it breathed new life into some fandoms because like oh they really needed this. Um, and us, you know, NCIS is so much better with all the Sentinels and Guide stuff. But also, what I would say is that I think that in a lot of ways, the core Sentinel fandom did not respond well to this influx of creativity and new concepts and the inability to see Blair as anything less than a female substitute. Or as anything more than a female substitute, I should say. Yeah. Because I could have happily written in the Sentinel for years. And I'm probably not the only one who got put off by that attitude. Oh, no. I mean, I had I had planned, after I started really dug in, I had plotted a big multi-fandom crossover. Because crossover is really my jam, especially that time, right? Because, like I said, I was reading anything I could get my hands on. It was like, I almost didn't... I didn't matter if I knew the fandom or not. I was like, yeah, I'll read it. And then I'd be looking up characters on IMDb and going, huh. Um, because, and sometimes I'd just be like, okay, I'm just too lost. I can't do this. But I I would try anything because I really wanted more Sentinel. I really wanted more Sentinel Guide. I just couldn't get enough of it. And and so I started, pl- pl- you know, plotted a big multi-fandom crossover that was rooted in the Sentinel, um, which was... Um, that when the when Blair did his press conference, that there were actually kind of sentinels and guides on the cusp all over the world. And when Blair went and did that press conference, that they had all been dreaming about um, their shaman, right? That that their shaman was coming and that there would be an awakening of the sentinels. So they all knew they were a little bit different, but they weren't quite online yet. And that when this press conference happened, that um, they started waking up. And they all started turning up in Cascade and saying, well, we don't care what you've said. We know you're, you're supposed to lead us and you're supposed to be our, our shaman. So I had plotted this whole thing, but the Sentinel fandom at that time was getting so ugly in the stuff it was putting out and the stuff that it was doing and the way they were perceiving the characters. And I just felt like it was so, I just took a break from it. I was like, no, I just got to set this one aside. And the way they were responding to works that didn't fit their box. Right. And their box was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and it was just like, don't you know you're don't you know you're you're killing your fandom? And I think they I think they did pretty much successfully kill the core fandom, because uh, while Blair and Jim will live on in in crossover fix, not many people write core Sentinel stories anymore. I mean, when is the last time there was an original work fo- focused on Jim and Blair posted on Ao3? I can't, I can't, I mean, I can't think of any. I mean, there's a couple of Sentinel authors I follow who don't write in Sentinel fandom anymore, so, you know. Um, I don't know. And I, I'm, and there used to be some very prolific Sentinel authors who don't, who stop, who just stopped writing the fandom one day without any kind of explanation. And nobody has to explain anything, so I'm not saying that they need to explain. But I have a hunch, considering the timing, that it was around them being told too many times, get back in your box. 
crossover. There was a um, an author I liked a lot who I think her, her she one of the things she explored a lot was Blair just getting enough having enough of Jim's shenanigans and saying okay enough's enough and kind of you know in some fashion or another kind of taking a break from him or whatever um, and and giving Jim the space and opportunity to wise up to how he had taken Blair for granted which was pretty much canon and and. And trying to make things right. So it was sort of a like mini redemption arc or, you know, them coming together, you know, on a more equal footing where Blair isn't just there to prop up Jim's senses. And so I enjoyed the way she explored most of the time, the way she explored that trope. And um, I think she had a lot of grief for it. You know, Bl- Blair not just unconditionally staying there. And Okay, we got a sequel to another uh, Sentinel fic. It's straight Sentinel, no crossover. Um, and what I did was I, I filtered for completed works and over 25K. So we got one called Truth and Consequences by Kate, Kate F. Um, it's a sequel to another work that she had written. Um, I mean, I don't I don't know. That one doesn't, that also doesn't sound familiar to me. I've not read it. Um, it's Sentinels and Guides are Known Universe. Um, but it looks to have a slavery edge. But I will say one of the things that sometimes there can be some misleading um, stuff on AO3 in the sense that people will post works that they used to have elsewhere and not backdate them. Yeah. You, c- you can backdate them, but you certainly don't have to. So when they're not backdated, they, you know, and I could see why. I could honestly see why an author might not backdate it because, um, I mean, what are, people are gonna have a hard time finding that fic if it's never been on AO3 and it gets backdated back to like 2002 or something. <laughs> it's, gonna, it's gonna appear nowhere, <laughs> no one's search results. I can't tell if these are stories that have been ported in from another archive or what. Because they all have the same kind of date. I think these are ports from it, that, that very well pro- could be. from from Prospect Place, maybe. Well, anyway. they, they well eight fifty two Prospect all came over in one lump a while ago. Because this one author posted several complete novels within a week. Well, she could have been posting her own works, you know, from yeah. from somewhere else. So, I mean, I know if I were, if I, I would much rather put, pull my, put my stuff in myself than let it be ported over through the open yeah, work project. So I would too. That way you can do your tags and set everything up and you know, have ownership over the well, content. You, you get ownership back. I learned this recently, um, which is that if you, if you log, if for those of you who've never been down this path. Um, if you write something under your pen name, let's say your name was Bob, you know, Bob, Richard Bob, we'll call him Richard Bob, Dick Bob. Um, Richard Bob writes a story with Richard Bob at gmail.com. Okay. Um, on this archive somewhere else, right? When that gets ported over, AO3 has provided the author's email address. And when you create an AO3 account with that email address that they verify, like you get an email and verify your account, when you log in, it tells you you've got works and do you want to claim them? And then That's they cool. get 
and then they get assigned to you. So that happened to me <laughs> one day. Um, I logged in and something that had come in through the Open Doors project. Um, it said, you've got to work, you know, here. And I was like, oh, okay. So, and then it, and then it becomes yours. And then you can go in and edit it and change it and add tags or whatever. But it has to be the same email address that the archive had when they ported over your stuff. And that um, you're, you still have access to that email address and can verify it, right? So, it, you know, there has to be like a chain of custody. <laughs> and you can't just, um, you know, one of the problems could be that, you know, the email address you were using in the late 90s, you don't have access to anymore. And then you'll never be able to get custody of those fi those fix, at least not, not in a way that I know of. I'm a firm believer in control of my stuff. You guys yeah. might have noticed. It might have come uh -huh. up. It might have. Yeah. A little bit. Once or twice. But um, one of the things I think is important to new writers coming into the Sentinel crossover idea is to for you to know that the concept of the guide with the, with the telepathic or empathic abilities is entirely banned. And... Not I didn't even... know this. Really? Because the, started... like, like, the guide is mentioned once by right. the bad guy in canon. Well, he just calls and him. He, uh, he calls a him a guide. Right, and Blair doesn't have any empathic or telepathic abilities. I think that he is uh, naturally a very empathetic person, and he's mm -hmm. very um, sensitive to other people's emotions, and uh, he's. Um, like in canon, but all the abilities we assign guides in Fanon is just that. It's Fanon. <clears throat> and 95% of the stuff we do about spirit guides is Fanon. Maybe 99%. Right. We do see, like, Jim's uh, spirit guide and the, the, the Blue Jungle Dreams, um, but it's, like, not at the level of spiritual awakening that we have in Thanon. Um, and the wolf we only see, I think, when Blair dies, right? Right. At the fountain. So, I mean, we talked, we actually mentioned this example on another podcast, but it, it, since we're talking about canon versus Thanon, um, this is worth bringing up. But there's very little actual canon about guides, as Kira mentioned, or about spirit guides. And what the, the only canon we really have about spirit guides is basically that they exist. That's about it. What their real function is is really vague. Um, it's never really explained. It's never really explored. They just didn't go into it. So there's some, one of our, one of our rough trade writers wrote a um, Sentinel story for one of the challenges where the spirit guides could talk. And they got major flack from a, from a reader who just bashed them for violating um, the canon about spirit guides. The canon about spirit guides, which is laughably ridiculous because what they were actually pissed about was that this person violated their common fanon. Because spirit guides talking certainly is not common fanon, um, but I've seen it more than once. 
But how can you be mad at somebody for violating Fanon? That is just absurd. I, I don't even think you should be all that Except mad at people I for think that Fanon. a lot of true, like, like Sentinel fans who are like pure Sentinel fans make a hobby of getting outraged about how you use Fanon. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you didn't use the Fanon correctly. Excuse me? <laughs> Fuck you, I do what I want. <laughs> So, I mean, I mean, I can, I can acknowledge that it could be a bit of a head tilter for somebody, especially if they read his dark materials, because it could feel more like demons than spirit guides. But that doesn't mean anything. You, there's no violation of canon or fanon, just your personal head canon. And it could be if you're like a his dark materials, you know, person, if, that, if you're a fan of that, that you might not want to read a story where someone interprets spirit guides as being able to speak. Because it, it may be too, you know, much crossing the streams for you. But that should be fine. Just move on. Just because it's your personal headcanon or your personal fanon does not mean that it's, it has to be anybody else's. And But in the Sentinel, I do think people can get very attached to their interpretation of, of fanon. Which is weird. Because <laughs> it's a little bit weird. Because it's one thing to have a personal headcanon or, or develop your own fanon about canon events, but it's a little bit stranger to develop your own fanon about fanon. <laughs> I have a headcanon about I have a headcanon about fanon. Don't you dare. Don't you dare violate it. It's like well, um, I actually probably have some headcanon about fanon. But that's mine. My yeah. headcanon is always mine and I don't um make any effort to force other people to use it. I mean, there are some tropes that people have in fanon. There's a big fanon. There are tropes, some tropes people use that I hate with a passion. But what is that? That doesn't mean that they're violating fanon. It just means that they write a trope I don't like. But for on a for real note, it would be nice if those of you who do actually use my head cannon, if you would credit me, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> if you're gonna be taking my shit. My plot. Say so. so. I mean, I will say that there there are some um, there are some tropes in the Sentinel in the, in the bigger Sentinel fanon that it's really hard to to tell where they originated from. Um, I know that like the first time I ever saw like the term pride used is for a group of, of sentinels and guides was probably in the early two thousands around there. It was a long ass time ago. Um, so there's some concepts and I couldn't tell you, you know, who did it first. It's just impossible. It's been 20 fucking years. Right. So who did it first? Couldn't tell you. Um, when I first encountered it, I was like, really? That's a word you've chosen to use. Everybody else is using it too. Great. Okay. I guess I'll just have to, I guess I'll, I'll have to use it. I'm going to ignore that you've made your mostly male-dominated fic about a, gun to gay, about a bunch of gay sentinels, and you're going to call their group a pride. Okay. I mean, yeah, okay. Do y'all bitches know that a prize is a bunch of female lions? Are you aware? But I was like, okay, 
Well, I thought it was just a group of lions. No. There's usually one male, but uh, males are often, like, they roam, but prides are female. <laughs> Margaret says male lions are freeloaders. <laughs> well, no, it says that a pride of lions is up to three males, so it's not. It can't. It's not just female. That's according but to it's Jim. mostly female. Well, that's because and it's all, mostly, and there yeah. are some prides that are entirely female who occasionally let a male lion travel with them a little bit to get babies. It greatly depends, but for them to be calling all these entirely male groups prides was like. Really? That's that's what you're gonna do. Well, could be. <laughs> but okay. It also. I mean, I, I actually. I mean, it could just be that I'm so indoctrinated into the into the into that headcanon of that of that fanon of it being called prides that pack sounds weird to me. Um, but also, it helps me differentiate Between. my love my love of, of shifter fic from. I would I would agree. I mean, I use it. I use pride. I always have. But I was like. Really? But part of me also saw because I mostly read, I mostly read gay. I just was like, I wonder if they're making a whoever did this first was poking at gay pride, and oh. the and the homophobes don't realize what they're doing. So I kind of assumed there was like a little bit of a a little um, poke, a little subversiveness um, going on there. But the but this is also especially I was you, you would counter these slash writers who get pissed at you, and you mentioned it earlier, about including a het pairing in your story. And God help you if you actually wrote explicit het sex in the middle of your slash story. And people used to try to pander to readers at this, you know, about this kind of stuff. Like, if you don't want to read this, whatever it is, the explicit sex, or whatever, if you don't want to read this, you look for the this marker, and then you can just skip from marker to marker and skip the objectionable content that you don't want to read. And it's like, man, fuck you. I'm ne- <laughs> I will, I will, ne- unless I write like graphic, almost I would do it for trigger content, but I would never do it for sex. If I were writing like something really graphically violent, which I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine me going there because usually what happens is when it starts to get intense, I do is fade to black and let people figure out, figure out what happened later. But if I were like something graphically violent or torture or something, I might give people like you know a marker so they can skip it. But I, I, that's the only reason I could think of that I would do that. I would not give people a someone a pass. tried to let me do a marker to skip anal sex or any kind of anal play. Actually, it wasn't just anal sex, and I was like, not only am I not doing that, I'm putting anal sex in everything I write from now on. <laughs> And she's going to put something critically interesting to the story in the middle of the sex. <laughs> so someone you skip goes, it. You're fucked. <laughs> there you go. What, what, what vision are they referring to? What vision? What rune? I don't know what they're talking about. Oh, well, you missed. You, then you skipped the sex scene, didn't you? Fucker. Actually, I, you know, one of the things I don't. People should read or write. Read what they want, right? But I, I know how to skim a sex scene. I do it all the time. I'm like, wow, this is really boring skim um so if you can't figure out how to skim a sex scene so that you don't have to read i mean i skim sex scenes, but i don't like 
comment to the authors, I really wish you hadn't written this sex scene and please don't ever no, write that's it again. No, that's the point. And, but exactly. I often skim write sex I often skim sex scenes because people can't write sex. But Exactly, that's my point. But I skim past <laughs> them, but I, do, I don't just skip it. I do skim past them to see if there's any dialogue or anything I need to know. Um, but the thing is, when I'm starting to, you know, when it's been like 4,000 words and they haven't gotten their pants off yet, I'm like, too much detail. That's the biggest reason why I skim sex scenes to be, to be honest, is too much detail. Um, Oh, but anyway, so I was talking about um, with with some things, I I couldn't tell you where they originally came from, and so there are some ideas that, I, and also I've seen ideas kind of kind of come up kind of simultaneously from different authors, but some but sometimes you do run across world building that is very unique, um, and I think that people are just so used to appropriating fanon, which is fine in in the Sentinel fandom that. It's like they forget that it's kind of impolite not to at least credit who who came up with that. Because what happens is then it perpetuates. When one person doesn't credit and then two people don't credit or they get inspired by person B who never credited the original creator of of that But sometimes that you concept. can't give appropriate credit, but I think it's good to at least acknowledge who inspired you. Right. If, yeah. Because that way, you know, the prick can go back and... Because then what happens if you've gotten like 10 authors who now have done this and maybe, this, you know, persons three, four and five through 10 didn't know who originally came up with this concept. Now it's become a trope. And like, how do you credit who came up with it? You don't because you don't know. I personally do need to know the thread count of the sheets has because um, you don't need to sleep with a cheap bastard. <laughs> If you well, can't put good cheese on your bed, you don't need me. Well, when when you're fucking them, you need to know. But do you need to know um, when you're reading a story about someone else getting fucked? Well, I'd like to know if they're cheap bastards to see well, if they actually really deserve the person they're about to bang. <laughs> that's it. Gibbs Gibbs is never gonna deserve Tony. I'm just saying because <laughs> him and his Sears sheets, he's not. That's that is the least of the reasons why he does not deserve Tony to know. So. <laughs> So for most people, I would say the majority of people who are going to do rough trade next year, majority, actually, I think all of them, it's going to have to be all of them considering, well, I'm considering the themes. Well, I think that honestly, I think the only challenge that doesn't allow you to, that doesn't force you to deal with Fanon is... Um, pairs. I mean, the bond. No, pairs. The one with the established, the established relationship one. You could, you right. could conceivably do Jim and Blair in a relationship and write a story, but but like pairs, the bonds requires you to to do bonding, right? So if you do that challenge, you're gonna not every hundred percent of the participants are gonna have to deal fanon. But in November, all you have to do is Sentinel plus another trope. Well, true. So, so- you could do core sentinel, yeah. But most people, most people are going to want to deal with fan, and they're not. Most of the writers, I would be surprised if they get anybody. I have a does. really good connection, as so I don't know if it's me or you. She says she's not, our voices are dropping. I, every once in a while, I get a little bit of like audio distortion from you, but it's very, it's very minimal. I can still understand you, and I haven't, I haven't heard any dropping. 
Okay, so as it's your, it's your connection, you might want to pop out and pop back in. Okay, um, but so most of the, I would guess the majority of people who write are going to be writing, they're going to be dealing with Fanon more than Canon. And they probably right. aren't going to, other than having Jim and Blair being like, you know, whatever role they play in the background, they're probably not even going to be dealing with the Sentinel, the actual Sentinel fandom in, in as part of their core plot or core fandom. So it's that's where it becomes important to really think about what fanon you're going to want to use and how to make it internally consistent and how to um i don't know you just got to you just got to psych yourself up to get ready to deal with fan and don't worry in the sentinel you got to really just not worry about canon it's one of those times where we go you know don't 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 even bother cuz there's no canon to be for you to fuss with if you're not writing in the actual sentinel fandom it's all fanon, except I gotta ha I gotta I gotta give myself a a disclaimer. Canon define. I have a hard time with this when people do this. Okay, this is just me. I'm not saying they can't do it, but this is me. Canon defined a sentinel as someone with five enhanced sen senses. So when I see people redefining a sentinel as somebody with any sense enhanced, I don't like that either. It really, I can't do it. It's a, it's an instant no for me when I read a story about a three cent sentinel or something, and I know a lot of people have done it, three or four cent sentinels, five cent sentinels. It, that is that is a vi to me, to me that that really separate that diverges too far from the canon concept of what a sentinel was, and I'm usually fine with 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 double bird and canon, but that one in particular, I, it's just a hard stop for me. Well, to me, they're not actually riding a sentinel. Therefore, right. they're in violation of the challenge. <laughs> um, yeah, I write. I write where sometimes they have varying level. Well, always that they have varying level of degree of aptitude and, and, and acuity in each sense. That they're not all every sense maxed out. And even with a sen sentinel who's got five strong, you know, really strong senses that they still have one or two that's even more acute than the others. Um, but to write a sentinel for me, I can't, I just can't do it. So, um, yeah, Blair did find other people who had enhanced senses, but none of them were a sentinel. Jim was a sentinel. Jen had, because Jen had, because blah, 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 blah. <laughs> just, it was not coming out because Jim had all five. Which right. made him a sentinel. And he was on the lookout for something with all five because that was the definition of what a sentinel was. So when people go to the three, to the go to the different level, um, the only time I think it's worked for me in a story was when a sentinel had an accident that like blinded them or they lost their hearing or something. Um, now, in my in story where I wrote, I would probably have that sentinel go dormant, but I could actually see that you could have more like a daredevil type situation where. Um, their other sentence senses could be so acute, become so acute that they um, really overcompensated for their, even to a point of where you could even get into things like, you know, they could al almost see in a different way. Um, but, but that would, I mean, I could read it. I don't, I think I'd have a hard time writing it. I could, I could read it, but a sentinel that, had lost a sense and then came online. I don't. I don't think that that jives with my head canon either. I don't think it. I don't think it jives with canon because the whole point of the Watchmen, of the, 
of the Sentinel was to protect the tribe. Um, and someone with a deficit would have a hard time protecting the tribe. This is supposed to be their protector, their watchman. And that doesn't make any sense. I, I'm not talking about, yeah, I'm not, I agree with you, Kara. I'm not talking about temporary loss. I'm talking about permanent loss. Yeah. Um, Jim had several senses overload during the course of the series, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In response to traumatic um, sensory input. Which, I mean, people leverage that kind of information for their fanon. That's where I got, like, some of the ideas I've worked with was from canon, um, where Jim has had reactions that affected his senses. But, um, but, um, yeah, so it's just, it's just, that's my head canon about, um, how a sentinel. Someone asked up earlier about, um, if they had less than five senses, couldn't you just call them enhanced? Yes, you could call somebody who has less than five sentinels, means five senses enhanced, but they would not be a sentinel and therefore wouldn't qualify for the challenge next year. Now we, I did, I did read a story once. Um, well, maybe more than once. I may have seen this more than once where somebody who had less that, that the definition for them of they, they redefined latent a little bit differently, which was that latent were people who were basically coming online and they might be only have two senses online yet. So therefore they were latent and they came online gradually and they learned how to deal with their senses in a more gradual fashion. It's actually kind of interesting. Um, I don't remember. I don't even remember the fandom that was in. I just remember the concept because it, I thought it was really interesting that latency um, was defined as somebody who was basically online, but they hadn't fully come online yet. They were in the process of becoming online. So, like, they'd be like a two cent. They'd be a two cents latent or three cents latent or whatever. Um, and in that way, they could be a three cent sentinel because technically they're coming online. The sentinel just hasn't finished happening yet. Um. It'd be interesting to write that in that, that that their senses are gradually coming online and they're latent, but um, the full introduction of their spirit animal could be what takes them over the edge. Yeah. So I thought there's some interesting, like, because people pl- take existing concepts and they kind of rework them and, and give a new spin to it. So like somebody redefining what latency means or... Um, because, you know, there's a lot of different definitions for latent in Fanon. People use it differently. Uh, there's different definitions in Fanon for dormancy. The, you know, it's just there's different ways people approach even a common a common lexicon, um, which it's not actually all that common a lexicon when we don't all use the words the same way. But so you can you can do that. They'll ask that, answer that question in just a second. So you can do those, um, you can play with those concepts, but, and so a lot of stuff when people like ignore certain canon elements, I'm like fine with it. Cause it's, there's just, they didn't give us much in the terms of the world building about Sentinels in canon. So it is one of those, one of those things you can work with and not know the canon at all. Except for me, I just have a hard time getting around that one one core thing, which was in the very first episode when Blair was fo- found his Holy Grail, a somebody with five enhanced senses. And, and that that was what a sentinel was. So when I see that written with less, somebody being, you know, being a sentinel, I've only seen it work for me like that in that one kind of example. Um, so somebody asked about dormancy via mental instability or loss. Was that fanon or canon? Um, 
It's Fanon, because if it was canon, Alex wouldn't have been the Sentinel, and Alex was. Right. Well, I think the concept... Uh, it actually, that's a bit of fanon that I, I agree with you. It, it almost defies canon. Because in the kind of world that I write, um, which is in the Sentinel guide, Sentinels are Guide known universe, an evil, crazy Sentinel, psychopathic Sentinel, is a very problematic world building element, if that's allowed to be. Um, I don't especially think in the Sentinels and Gods are known universe, um, because the protecting them as a protected group means that they're um, you don't want to have elements that um, prevalent elements like insanity, um, sociopathology, uh, to taint the rest of the pride so to speak <laughs> well but also you have for me the biggest element that's a problem with sentinels is that you have to have if, if, if you're gonna write the kind of sentinels and guides universe our known universe that i would write where they're a part of society they're a protected part of society society has to trust them and which means you're trusting a, a you're trusting an that this group of people as a whole with society's secrets. You're trusting that your neighbor who's a sentinel is, isn't violating your privacy any more than absolutely necessary. Um, you're, you say society has to have a level of confidence about that kind of thing. And how would they have that when there are sentinels using their sentence senses to commit crimes, when there are sentinels using their sentence senses to, to subvert governments? Um, it, it just, it, it becomes a big problem. So unless you're writing something that's kind of dystopian, um, that that element in canon of Alex's existence and how crazy cakes and violent she was um, is very problematic. It wasn't problematic in 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 the canon because she was it, the Sentinels and Guides were not known. People didn't know that Sentinels existed. But it becomes a problem in a Sentinels and Guides or Known Universe. So when you when you try to write, what I see is when I see people writing criminal Sentinels, truly criminal Sentinels, without and yet having the typical Sentinels or Guides or Known world building of society protecting and trusting Sentinels, it becomes problematic because society wouldn't trust a group of basically superpowered people who we're using their senses as to be criminals. It just, it doesn't gel. Missed a lot of stuff in the chat room. Oh, we're talking about Alex's motives in canon. Alex, um, for those of you who are unaware, was a female sentinel who eventually, um, due to rejection, kills Blair. Um, Jim brings him back. Uh, she drowns Blair in a fountain in front of her hotel. Um, no, then, at, the, at the university. At the university. And eventually she kidnaps Blair and takes him to South America and Jim has to rescue him. Right? No? No, Jim left Blair in the hospital and followed Alex to South America. Um, I thought that Blair followed Jim. Okay, I was yeah. wondering, because I remember, I, it's very vague. Blair, Jim, Blair was in the hospital, Jim left. Um that was the the scene that, uh, that launched you know a thousand a thousand ships and a thousand fix, which was that um, 
Blair had basically talked about the kind of the bonding, the merger that they, that their spirit animals had had on the spirit plane. And he, he said something like, come on in the water's fine or something. And Jim rejected him and he left to go follow Alex and Blair followed Jim. I, mean, I haven't seen this episode in a bazillion years. That's what I remember. Yeah, I've only seen it once. And I just remember Blair being in South America. I thought she kidnapped him. But I guess not. So I remember Jim and Alex going into the pool. Mm-hmm. And Alex comes with it. She's like catatonic, she, right? Yeah, she, she comes out. She, she comes out fucked up. Because she wasn't supposed to go there. So And so she winds up in a... I don't think it was clear in canon. Somebody else maybe may remember better than I do, but I don't think that she was. Uh, I don't think it was clear if she was still a sentinel. If she still had the senses, she was. She was. They put her in, a, in an institution, but I don't know if she was still have it had her senses. So Tiffany said she just watched the episode and it wasn't clear. Okay, so yeah, she was catatonic. So. That could that you know to me that's where when I see the idea of dormancy like a, something happens to a sentinel and they go dormant or whatever, um, I see the, I see the seed of that idea coming from Alex Catatonia after being in the pool of the sentinels. But one of the most have, disgusting tropes I see come out of this Alex situation is that Jim got Alex pregnant and uh, she gives birth in the asylum and Jim takes the baby. I'm come on now, people. Come on. I don't know what the right answer for that is, but that's not it. I mean, if he had actually knocked her up, I'm not sure what the right answer would be. Well, I mean, if if Alex and Jim had had a sexual relationship and she got pregnant and she was and she was pregnant when this went down. And she gives birth. I mean, I don't know. In a catatonic what, state? I, I mean, right? I, don't, I'm, I actually think that I, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know who would have the right to decide in that case that. I mean, if the baby is genetically gems, then he has parental rights. Yes. Um, I don't know who would have the right to say the pregnant, the, um, the, the, the pregnancy couldn't continue. Um, that's, I don't that's, even know if they actually ever even knew their her her real name. Yeah, I mean that's that's the issue. I mean, it's such a thorny topic that I wouldn't want to write it. <laughs> um, but I, mean, I sure. like I encountered more than one story with this with this feature in it, and I was like, oh no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it's just not something that I would do. Not make the crazy lady a fucking incubator for Jim and Blair's baby. Come on now, because that that that's what it boiled down to, and that's abusive. I mean, granted, she's, you know, crazy cakes, but... I know, I, I, it's, it's, to me, it's really ambiguous, because if she was in a relationship, if she had consensual sex with Jim and got pregnant, and then she winds up in a catatonic, Jim doesn't have the right to tell them to terminate the pregnancy. He has no legal rights over her at all. Her. Right. He has, he has parental rights with the baby, but he doesn't have any, any legal right to, to authorize an abortion. So it's just, I mean, it's so murky um, that I, I would never, I would never write that. And I would, I wouldn't want to read it, but I don't know. I mean, they're using her, they're doing something really 
that feels very uncomfortable in order to have a way to give Jim a biological child. But the thing is, I mean, I saw people doing a lot of really crazy stuff to try to make all those events with Alex. And, you know, like if you write Jim and if you write Jim and Blair already in a relationship, like there were many stories where I would read Jim and Blair already in a relationship at the point in time where the Alex events went down. And the reality is if, if Jim and Blair are already in a relationship, um, that stuff with Alex doesn't happen the same way. So when it, when they, when they do hinky stuff, they basically, you know, have, or they add on, you know, they have Blair and, you know, Jim and Alex having sex and, and, you know, then Jim has to explain why he was unfaithful to Blair. And it was just like, why could he just not have had sex with her? I mean, that seems to be, if he's already in a relationship, why can't he just not bang her? Because they're so like invested in canon that they yeah. can't not include these canon events. It's like the same thing with Chaya and John in Stargate Atlantis. If John and Rodney are already in a relationship and the Chaya things happen, a lot of times it's that Chaya manipulated him, that she brain fucked him, um, that he wasn't acting of his own free will, that he, that, that he was being, um, that she used her ancient powers of mojo. But see, the thing is that the, that's, that's not canon because um, in canon, if an ancient ascended being literally acts on a living person, the other ancient ascendant being is come and get them. Especially since she wasn't on her fucking planet. So there's no way that she would have been able to influence John and get away with it in canon. But a lot of times writers, if they encounter this particular event in the course of their work, they include it and turn her into a rapist. And I don't like Chaya. I think she's an asshole. Um, and I think she's probably also... Um, I'm not that far off from an Ori because she is getting a worship from those people on her planet um, for their protect for, for her protection. So she's very corrupted, but she's not a rapist. And it's just like, come on now. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like when, when I talk to people, it's like, well, why don't you just have Chaya not happen? Because I mean, I was talking about, you know, a, a Stargate plot one day and somebody asked me and said, well, what are you going to do about Chaya? I'm like, what is there to say? Nothing. I'm not going to do anything about her. John's not going to flirt with her. He's going to be banging Rodney at that point. There's, that's, it's that simple. It just doesn't You don't happen. have to pay service to the canon in that circumstance. If you, if you, it, it, even in a canon divergent situation, you absolutely should not be paying service to, to all the canon events because the point of canon divergence is to explore what happens when you change something, when you diverge. And so if you're just going to make all the events go down the same way, what's the point? But fortunately, um, when it comes to the Sentinel and Guide universe, you have more, your ripples are more in, is your world building in conflict with itself? Because when you're dealing with fan and there's so many different expressions of things, sometimes there's just micro adjustments. And from the outside, it may not be obvious to you how an author has turned or twisted things in a common, maybe a common fan and trope to make it work with their world building. Um, trying to think of an example. Well, the, the example like what we just talked about, one of the things we just talked about, which was that um, you can't have corrupt sentinels because so if you're writing a a story where there are a lot of sentinels and guides, you know, it's if you're not not like tons, but you know, it, it's enough that they have their own governance, which is the most common to me. Um, 
numbers is that they have enough to have some level of their own governance and they have support centers and, you know, there are places to go for help and society accepts them and society appreciates. When you have writing that kind of world where there's enough sentinels and guides to have that level of infrastructure and support and societal acceptance, and then you write crazy sentinels and abusive guides and stuff into your world, you've got a problem. Your world building is in conflict with itself. So you may like what this person did, person over here who wrote this world building you really like, and you're, you're turning in a little bit. So you've got an assassin sentinel who's killing a bunch of people. And I just pulled that, that example out of my ass. I, I haven't actually read assassin sentinel. Um, but that's all a matter of perspective too, because one person's assassin is another person's um, authorized sniper. Well, true, but I think that it's this whatever the sentinel imperative is, you know, to some degree, he would have to know who he was being targeted, you know, put he, who he was being pointed at, why he was being pointed at them, and make sure he felt it was really within in the best interest of his pride that he killed those people. Because you have Sentinels on two sides of an armed conflict. They're both fulfilling their imperative. Right, which I think could absolutely happen. Um, but you just have to be careful about corrupt Sentinels. Because otherwise you've got a problem in your world building. And I see this. I've seen this multiple times. Where people use the, like, uh, the, the common world building that is a staple for many writers. Which is like Sentinel and Guide Centers or Foundation or whatever you want to call it. Um, that people use that kind of world building and where there's a council or, or something that's in, in a governance position. And then they have corrupt sentinels running around doing stuff and society apparently still un unreservedly trusts sentinels and it just doesn't gel. If you have corrupted sentinels, then you must account for it in your world building. And if sentinels are capable of um, murder, outright murder, child molestation, rape, um, that level of corruption, then they are not being governed by themselves. They're not governing each other. They are being governed by the government and they are being controlled. They're probably being, um, it's, it's, you, you get pretty close to a slave AU, actually. If you give yeah. them that much corruption, if you put that much corruption into their population, which is in violation of the canon, literally of the canon concept of what a sentinel is, then you're... Because uh, in Sentinels of Atlantis, I have some sentinels and guys who are playing nasty political games with each other, but not outside of their own community. And they're being punished inside their own community. Because they're human beings, so I think they're capable of that kind of thing, you know, fucking with each other. But they keep that shit contained because they don't want to end up at the um, at the mercy of various governments around the world. Which makes sense because you have to you have to just have to be careful. That's why I I think a corrupt sentinel will become dormant. That's how I handle that. And when I do in my sentinel guide world building, is that if a sentinel's going down a dark path, they lose their gift. That's just the way that goes because it, it solves a lot of problems in the world building. It allows Sentinels to be almost universally trusted because people know that they don't keep their gift if they go bad. So it, it just, it just, it smooths no, over we're not, a lot of those. We're not saying you can't write it. We're just saying we won't believe it. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that happens a lot. I mean, it is actually very easy to um to break my suspension of disbelief. So, you know, do with that what you will. And people break my suspension of disbelief in their world building on Sentinel's Guide all the time, especially when they're using common fanon that doesn't line up. Because there's a lot of fanon. There's a lot of fanon out there. And a lot of different expressions of the same concept. So, um, like, I always use Sentinel Prime. Prime Sentinel always use it the same way, which is it's the person who controls the territory. But I think that you've used Prime more than one way. I have, yeah. So for me, Alpha Sentinels are the the sort of you know the leader sentinels and primes are people who who control territory, um, which is you know in my world building a, a prime is always an alpha sentinel, but not necessarily the strongest sentinel because sometimes the strongest sentinels are not the ones who want to run the territory. Like I would see uh, Ian Edgerton always being an alpha sentinel. I would never write him as a prime because I don't see him as the kind of sentinel who would want to sit down and run a territory, who would want to be in charge. He just He's more, I would see him more as like um, the Primus type of Sentinels. Like I wrote in Primus, I wrote the Sentinels who kind of live at the fringes of society and um, they deal with the really the advanced threats. And I would see Edgerton as being more like that. Here's the thing about Gibbs. He is actually, um, you, know, you can twist him around and, you know, take him into an AU situation. But in canon, Gibbs is not a Sentinel. Gibbs is corrupt as fuck. Yeah. He's amoral. He is capable of cold-blooded murder. He is capable of covering up cold-blooded murder in um, to do favors to people. He's just... He's not a sentinel. Not even early. Not even early Gibbs, because early Gibbs is still the one that took the shot. Well, but in a if he's a sentinel when he took that shot, he could have been sanctioned. Uh, only if it was sanctioned. But the thing is, is if they had enough evidence to sanction a hit, then they would have had enough evidence to get that guy extradited and prosecuted. In a sentinel world, that guy would have never gotten away with it. He'd have been brought to justice. And Gibbs would have which, never had to take that shot. Which is the, in a sentinels and guys are known universe, you can make that choice. That, or, or if that, it could be because well, I've written that they're sanctioned hunts in in uh, in Sentinels and Guide universes. So if the government isn't, I wrote one in Descendant. Yeah, huh? yeah, and I wrote a sanctioned hunt in if I wasn't waiting for you. Um, but that was a case of a serial killer they couldn't catch, which a drug lord could be the same situation. So I had um, Tony go on a sanctioned hunt because the replicator was targeting his guide's team, and the Sentinel Guide Council authorized him to take out the serial killer if he could find him. And so you could, you could write something like that, but it's, it was, you know, so you could have a sanctioned hunt on some, on something like Pedro Hernandez, which in a Sentinels and Guides are known universe. Um, if, if Gibbs was an online guide, Pedro Hernandez would be a fucking idiot. To go after his family. Well, the question would be: Online Sentinel, would he have even got an opportunity to take out Gibbs's family? Because if Shannon had witnessed a murder, and she did in canon, right? 
and she witnessed the murder. Um, and Gibbs is overseas doing his job as a sentinel. Then the local sentinel center should have and would have taken over the protection of Gibbs's wife and child. So Hernandez would never have had an opportunity to get near them. Because a threat to his family would have put Gibbs in a position to come um, to go feral. If they want to keep him active on duty doing his job, then if he wasn't a sentinel yet, I don't think he would come online as a sentinel. I think the trauma of losing his wife and child would have would he'd either go feral and spiral to the point where they killed him or he would go completely dormant. That's just my personal thoughts on that. So it's just you gotta you just gotta work through those kinds. So if you want Gibbs to be a sentinel, um, you gotta change him a lot. You gotta we gotta work on it. I mean, I've written him as a sentinel, not with Tony, but I've written him as a sentinel in. Um, he's a sentinel in um, what's it? Vicious, right? Yeah, but in that yeah, but he's uh, different. He's in the he's main different. pairing. He's way different. But Shan- Kelly's alive. Shannon's. Um, but Gibbs was with them. Um, actually, they're both alive. What am I saying? They're both alive. He was with them um, when the shot was taken, and he prevented their deaths because he was he saw the sniper. So, well, there's um, no reason to say that if if Gibbs was a sentinel, that Shannon was his guide. If he came on after he got married, there's I mean, maybe he met somebody in the service that uh, was his match as a guide. Yeah. Um, now I have him being at, now in stories where he's not the main character, uh, where he's not with Tony. I do have him like being a sentinel, um, and imperfect. He's a sentinel sliding into dormancy, who rejects Tony as his match. Um, he's actually, an asshole. I'm yeah, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got and feelings what, about that. I'm bitter. <laughs> and well, it, I agree that it doesn't make a ton of sense for Gibbs to be a sentinel at all. I went ahead and used it as a plot device in that particular story. Yeah. Um, but Gibbs, Gibbs was Gibbs didn't want to be a sentinel. He didn't want to have a bond with somebody um, at all. He didn't want you know. And what he says to Tony is that he doesn't. He doesn't. He he can't have more with somebody else than he than he ever had with Shannon. And that's why he refused to ever entertain the idea of bonding with anybody. And, uh, but he's sliding into dormancy because he refuses to, it's a slow slide. So he doesn't use a sentence, he doesn't use a sentence senses. Um, and in that story, it's kind of in the background, but he's not as corrupt because I don't think he would be, but he just, he's got a slow slide into dormancy because he just refuses to be well, a sentinel. I think that the sentinel canon would prevent that kind of corruption. So if you get him when he's young, um, you can prevent a lot of his shenanigans. Yeah. That's a really interesting point, Angelic. She said, if Gibbs wasn't a sentinel, I can't see him tolerating them or guides. He hates people that are stronger than him. That is <laughs> that is some spot-on characterization. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Now, I've I've written him as being a um sort of I've often written him as being more 
I've treated him more benevolently, benevolently than I actually perceive him. Yeah. In in stories, um, you can shift him and move him around to make him more palatable. Is that that's the right word? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in canon, he's a he's just a piece of shit. And the it's true though that the further you go in canon, the worse worse he is, and they just keep doubling down on how awful he is. But if you shift around some of the some of the events from earlier in his life, um, you know he's pretty pretty tolerable um, for the first couple of seasons, and then Ziva came along. Yeah. That was really the, 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 the tipping point for me. But that spot on characterization, the only time I've ever seen that like that is in a story I read once, and I forget the name and the title and the author. Um, but the author said that John Shepard walked around Atlantis with a Teflon coating. Yeah. Skin. <laughs> Basically, just everything slid off of him and, and nothing stuck. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's like totally John Shepard. <laughs> he walked around with a Teflon coating. Yeah, and you do sometimes to use a character that does things really objectionable um, in canon. You kind of do have to kind of, if you want to use them in a positive or even a neutral way, you kind of have to bend them a little bit. I don't know that you have to full on take them out of character because out of, full on out of character to me would be like he's not an asshole. I mean, you know, if you're if he's not he's not a, if you if you take away his bastard traits, that to me would be taking him full on out of character. Uh, but I think you can mitigate some of his, the events of of his his behavior, and just turn him a little bit to make him a little easier to deal with. Yeah, you need to twist him just a little bit, turn him, um, not let some of the events happen. You know that that, that happened in canon makes it easier. Supposed to have the chat room, they find it easier to write Gibbs when Tony is female. That makes total sense because Gibbs doesn't abuse women the way he abuses men. He actively seeks to emasculate men around him. Or am I the only one that noticed that? No, no, no. I agree with you. <laughs> I'm just, I was just thinking through it because some of the way he is with women is almost, it's almost, it's almost sexism. Yeah, it's not yeah, misogyny. It is. It, but it is this form of like like the, the stuff he lets you know the women in his life get away with that he doesn't. Want. It's like this is a weird form of sexism you've got going on. It's not healthy for them or for you. Benevolent misogyny. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, that term doesn't quite resonate. It's not, I don't, to me, it's not quite misogyny because, yeah, yeah. Okay, Shadow, I, I agree with you. It feels like a function of chauvinism. Yeah. But you know, like the stuff, some of the stuff that Kate get away with because she bitched about. But the thing is, Kate, Kate was the person bitching about. You know, you guys tr treating, making the woman do the, the dirty work. Now they're making the probie do the dirty work, and then Gibbs will let her get away with it, which is sexist. <laughs> no, Gibbs, the sexism is actually on your part. Well, except I don't think Gibbs ever treated women like they were weaker. So I don't, I don't see the, the, whereas I think that, that sometimes that form of, of chauvinism can be entrenched in, in the idea that women are weaker and must be protected. I don't, I don't think that the, the germ of that with Gibbs, the way he's portrayed is that, that his sexism is a function of him thinking women are weaker. 
Yeah, he's, he he's has not- two categories for women. Um, women he wants to fuck and women who remind him of his daughter. Right, exactly. They're either his daughter's age or their potential sexual partner. So, But I don't think it's a function of him thinking they're weaker. So that's why I kind of resist a little bit the term misogyny, but you know, it all, it all is, it's, it's a matter of degrees, right? But how, how anybody, how you perceive it is, you know, if you perceive it as, as a benevolent misogyny, that's totally fine. I just think it's kind of like a, a, a sexism thing. Yeah. It's chauvinism. But anyway, that's, that's a, to- that's a whole, that's a whole side thing. Um, that doesn't have anything to do with, um, Um, Fanon versus canon. So, we, and this is mostly, we're mostly talking about Fanon, as we mentioned, because there's not a lot of canon to deal with. Um, the canon, you know, um, um, the canon was very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Formula? Yeah, it was, it, it was, it was a formula, it was a formula cop show in a way buddy cop it was, it was sort of the form- the weird thing is they had this really potentially rich world building idea they were trying to fuse onto this you know buddy cop thing which was fine except they didn't explore the world they just kept exploring the buddy cop and fandom was going no what we really like is the world and they're going we're going to give you more buddy cop <laughs> it's like but we really want world and then they gave us alex and a drowning that, and- that wasn't what we wanted and that weird, wasn't what we wanted. Um, and weird blue, it's okay. weird blue dreams and a wolf and a panther. And we're kind of going, we're confused. This is not how we wanted you to explore the world. Um, not quite what we had in mind. So fandom steps in and goes, fine. If you're not going to flesh out the world, we will. You may not like the results. <laughs> said the supernatural fandom when they brought ABO into existence. But I will say Sentinel fandom did a little bit better with their big trope. <laughs> yeah, I mean if we overlooked the whole GDP thing. <laughs> that the whole slave thing. I don't but the thing is I don't consider that a, a a the slavery to be a trope of the Sentinel fandom. It's just an unfortunate trope that people like to find new ways to explore. But it's especially heinous in the Sentinel fandom. Oh, yes. And the level of misogyny in the Sentinel fandom is is stunning. <laughs> or, you know, what I hate most about the, about the, is the, is the one where Blair, not, not the one, there's, there's more than one story like this, but the concept where Blair is Jim's guide, but Jim is straight. So he's going to continue to fuck whoever he would like, but Blair can't have anybody ever touch him again as long as he lives because it'll upset Jim. Yeah, because Jim won't be able to bear to smell another sentinel, another person, or anybody. Touch, I mean, another person uh, touching Blair, right? It's, no one can. Um, um, Blair can't even masturbate because it would upset Jim's senses. Oh yes, this this was a was it real? This was a, this was a trope that was explored in many a sentinel story. This is not certainly not canon, but. Um, because Blair because, got it on on the regular. Yes, he Blair did. Blair got more ass than Jim did in that show. <laughs> and whereas Jim occasionally found it irksome because it was Jim's apartment, and he'd come home sometimes, you know, in Canada and kind of be making a face, like, what did you do in here? Um, 
But he's a sentinel, right? And it's his apartment. He comes home, it smells like a stranger. Whether there was sex involved or not, I could see him making a face. He Jim had big boundary issues. Like the Tupperware thing, that was canon. Um But But he never told Blair not to fuck people in canon. And yet that's where they ran with that idea was, you know, Jim reacting. Because that's what Sentinel would do, right? They're going to notice the smells on the people around them. Yeah, Jim had color-coded Tupperware in in canon. Um, He's very anal retentive at home. And Blair is the original laid-back whatever kind of guy. So they had a lot of conflict in their living situation. It was, it was actually a great way to build uh, moments with them. The writers put in was the this disparity between how they are at home. Um, <laughs> yeah. Blair did basically live in the cupboard under the stairs. It was a very, t- very teeny tiny little room that was down there underneath the, underneath the, the upper floor. But people, um, People ran with that idea of, of Jim being able to smell other people on Blair and finding it upsetting or whatever. And they really took it to a really ugly place in fandom, which was that Blair couldn't have sexual partners. Which is crazy cake. Yeah. It's crazy cakes that was ugly. So and this this was from the pe- this is from the people who didn't want to write slash is they would have this profound sentinel and guide bond. And then they would have Jim having sexual relationships with whoever, but Blair has to remain celibate. As to not upset Jim, because Jim's delicate like a flower. That poor little puppy. And this wasn't written as abusive. This was written as um, the way it's supposed to be. That it was perfectly okay, that it was the and, and, and that Blair was fine with it, and that was the worst part to me. I was like, "Oh well, of course I should devote myself my and my life to your, your, your health and happiness." I have to think that it was out of those kinds of stories, with where the trope came from that Blair Blair takes off. <laughs> like, I think that Fuck the, those, you in the eye. I think those people are like, "What the hell is this shit?" Uh, and they write stories where Blair leaves. Uh, I don't actually see a correlation between sentinels and werewolves and guides and emissaries. Um, I think if I were writing sentinels and guides in the in the Team Wolf fandom, they would just all be werewolves. Um, or it could be an emissary. I don't think I would. I don't think I would. Because I find the world building very different for werewolves because werewolves are born or bitten. They live in packs their whole lives. Um, and, and and so I don't see a direct correlation between them other than the fact that werewolves smell really well and so do sentinels. Yeah, I don't... Act, yeah, the, the whole truck thing, I don't know why it also wasn't canon that Jim had a very, very difficult time getting car insurance. Right? I don't think the time period explains it. Insurance has not gotten um, nicer over the years. Yeah, Blair um, also came in. Yeah, Blair had a difficult time staying in the truck. Yeah. In his defense, I wouldn't have stayed in the truck either. 
the trunk the, the truck often got blown up so <laughs> i'm not sure that's a why, good idea. yeah why would you leave him in the thing that's constantly getting blown up I've read some really interesting tropes in this in, um, in uh, crossovers, like with um, Jack O'Neill being Blair's father, or um, uh, one of the guys from Starsky and Hutch being his father, the the brunette one. Um, There's one or, where Magnum, um, Magnum's Magnum, dad. Magnum, Magnum being his dad. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Candy Apple wrote the Starsky and Hutch one. It's awesome. But also, there's a moment where I held to the where I did a little head tilt. That really the anal sex thing. Huh? What anal sex thing? Um, there's there's one sentinel story, and I'm not downing it. I was just I, I was like startled. Is that Jim that that Blair has met his biological father, and Jim and Blair had tried anal sex, but it was really painful for Blair and he talked about it to his biological father and his biological father gave him sex advice, anal sex advice and I was just like, explicit anal sex advice and I was like wow <laughs> I don't have those kinds of conversations with my mom <laughs> I mean, I've had sort of vague sex conversations with my mom but not about my actual sex, like the sex I'm actually having. We talked about sex in the generic, you know, but not. <laughs> just like I had tilted. I mean, I, I continue to read it because Candy Apple is an awesome writer. But I was just like, really? I would love to be on a wall to listen to the conversations you have with your mom because <laughs> that's not how it works with me and my mom. <laughs> yeah, not not that specific. No, um, no, especially especially. No. <laughs> it's just, Honestly, no, I, I could gonna... not have that kind of explicit conversation with my doctor, much less my mother. Sometimes, sometimes it's what you've got a bestie for. You know, you talk I to mean, you could Although... say, um, I had this sex in this position, it was kind of uncomfortable to your doctor, but to get into the detail that we're gotten into, it was like... Yeah, I... No. Startling. I, I mean, I was, I was a research girl. You, you know, even... It's, I had I had books, and once I once I got the internet and there were Usenet forums or whatever, I had places to go and ask questions. I I was not going to go to somebody I my mother and say, "Mom, it hurts when I do this." Then <laughs> no. don't do it, dumbass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what my mom would tell me. Then don't do that, dumbass. <laughs> Quit doing that. You won't hurt. Okay. <laughs> If anybody has any well reap and if anybody has any questions about like any kind of specific fanon elements that they'd like us to talk about or whatever, um, drop them up in the ask a question for the podcast channel because one thing I would like to say is that you are not required. Um, I think that we talked earlier about the, the 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 concepts of the challenges, and really the only one I think that is is dependent on fanon is the bonds one, and if you were very clever. You could probably write that without Fanon too. I mean, it would take some serious planning, some serious because I don't think a bond has to equal um, an you know an an empathic con uh, blah, blah blah. Help me out here. An empathic connection. 
as it often does in Fanon. So you probably could write Jim and Blair from the original series bonding. Mm-hmm. You could. It would be. I don't think it'd be as much fun as you know the whole Fanon concepts, but it's so you don't actually have to use Fanon for any of. I mean, you have there would be a lot of work, I think, for the Bonds one personally. Well, so, in, you know, to to make it work in in canon, it's my head canon interpretation of canon that they did bond. They just hadn't had sex and they weren't in a relationship. That to me was that whole thing with the wolf and the. Yeah, and the, and the jaguar jumping at each other and merging. To me, that was them having a bond, and Jim broke it and walked away. That's my head canon about what happened in canon. So you could. So to me, since there was since that element of bonding is established in canon, yeah, you could you could write that. Well, yeah, I agree. You don't have to give guides powers. They could just be. The only the only challenge where it becomes problematic to not rely on Fanon is the the is is um oh, actually I've said that completely backwards um it's it, it'll be hard to do the pair the bonding one without some Fanon elements but as Kara said you could you could you just need to really plan it don't don't plan to pants that yeah I mean. I think you might fall out. But the thing is, my experience from having been through many a little black dress challenge now is most people aren't interested in writing core Sentinel and writing in a more canon compliant universe. Most people aren't. Most people are wanting to write in the AU. They're wanting to write. It's it's a lot more fun. It's way more. The Magnificent Seven ATF thing. Yeah. It's more fun. (laughs) The Fanon is way more fun. Um, How are children in canon Fanon active guides or sentinels? It can get really ugly. Um, Yeah, I agree. Well, Jim, it's implied that Jim had some degree of sentinel, at least, I don't know if he was a full-on sentinel as a child, I actually tend to think he wasn't, but Cannon basically says that Jim had some senses that he suppressed as a child, that he couldn't deal with them, and that he suppressed it and turned it off, and he did it again after Peru. He managed to turn the sentinels, the senses off for a while. So, yeah, in Cannon, his father made him not deal with the sentences. So, Cannon shows that Jim had issues with his senses and he, he did stuff. But now in Fanon, um, it, but it, again, it's just not clear in Canon how, how acute his senses were. I don't think it's my head Canon that he was not fully a Sentinel until he was in Peru. And that's when he fully came online, but there's really nothing in Canon that completely supports that idea. It's just the way I interpreted it. Um, but yeah, if you're writing a Sentinels and Guides or Gnome universe, and you have children, Sentinels, and Guides, it is something you have to do a lot of work with to make sure you handle it in a way that is reasonable. Because if you've got a fully online four-year-old Sentinel, a fully online four-year-old Sentinel, um, you you got to work on that. You got to work on what what is what is the what are the things in place to to support that kid? Um, are they going to need conservatorship 
for their whole life to protect them from their senses. I mean, so you got to work on what the ramifications are of making a choice like that. Um, or you could just have it be make it, you know, make it easier and that children don't come online or, you know, just, but you just got to work it out because it, it is very problematic when an author puts in a very, very young settler guide and doesn't put any kind of, like just has them running around at school and, they don't have any issues and, and yet I mean, it's just, the world building's all got to jive. Just got, it's got to jive. Putting in Andy was a lot of work, but I needed a mirror for John. So I did the work. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot but, that the community does around Andy. Yeah. They're very aware uh, of him. They protect him. Um, when he, when he needs help, he gets help. Um, his father is very careful of his environment. It's not a trivial thing that he is so young and a strong sentinel. Oh, and there are politics, there are social issues. Um, he's being taught to ignore things he shouldn't hear. He's, um, there's, there's one time in particular in the story where um, David is putting him to bed and um, he basically tells him, don't try to circumvent the the white noise generator in your bedroom because he knows he's going to go next door or wherever his bedroom is in that house and have sex with Sean. <laughs> and he doesn't want his kid listening to it. <laughs> so, you know, this is the kind of thing you have to work on. Um, one of my favorite scenes, however, in Sentinels of Atlantis is when David starts to come online and um, Andy goes into his room and um, puts his hand on his chest and David thinks it's the neighbor playing drums or something. And uh, he's like, well, I'll have to complain about it. And he's like, no, daddy, that's you. <laughs> because, you know, um, David can hear, can hear his own heartbeat. And, um, but those are, uh, you have to pay attention to what's going on. And now in, um, I'm doing a story called the, um, the, um, the Raven and the Lion or the Lion and the Raven. And Harry Potter is an online sentinel. Um, and he's been online since he was an infant. He, um, he, um, he came online during the murder of his mother. And his aunt realized pretty much immediately that she had a sentinel on her hand. And she takes him to the Burton Foundation for help because she's not a dumbass. Um, even in canon, you know, if she's cruel, she's not stupid. So she knows she can't have this online sentinel in her house and not get him help. Um, so she takes him to get help, and so by the time Harry Potter gets his letter, he's been trained um, as a sentinel, um, and he's only going to Hogwarts because he firmly believes that he'll find his guide there, and he does, of course, because it comes that it's a Harry Hermione story. Um, but one of the things that he talks about is that um, because he was a magical sentinel, that there were elements of the magical part of the sentinel and guide that could have dampered his senses at his home like with wards and stuff so he wouldn't have to hear terrible things that happened but he chose not to reveal that he was a sentinel and guide to the magical part of their the world that he was a sentinel to protect himself um from from being manipulated um and the end result was is that he had to listen to things that he shouldn't have had to listen to and he caught um hold of a of a particular terrible moment for a pair of neighbors where the husband beat the wife to death and the husband not only faced charges for beating his wife to death he also faced charges for abusing harry because harry had to listen to it 
because there it was no secret to anybody in the neighborhood that that um Harry was a sentinel. Probably except for Mrs. Fig, because Mrs. Fig is in the dark. There's actually a really cute line where Harry is complimenting Petunia on her campaign against Arabella Fig. It said that he's really surprised that MI five hadn't come around to recruit her <laughs> for her counterintelligence skills alone. <laughs> But, you know, so there are, you know, when you, you have to think about what your child sentinel is going to be supposed, exposed to and what your child um, guide is going to be exposed to. Um, um, if they're going to go to school and recognize that one of their classmates is being sexually molested or um, if they're going to notice that their their teacher has bruises, that, that she's covering up with makeup really well, but the Sentinel can see um, straight through that makeup because of their ability to just to see. You know, they can, they can see that makeup's being caked on in certain areas, so they know their teacher's getting their ass kicked at home. You know, these are the kind of things that you have to pay attention to when you're um, when you're creating a child. And this is also really important if your Sentinel and Guide um, is an adult character that has been online for a very, 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 very long time. Um, like John has been online as a Sentinel um, and hiding most of his life when you meet him in the Gathering in the Sentinels of Atlantis. And meeting Rodney is so overwhelming that it hurts. And it wasn't that his senses were overreacting. And I will confuse that scene a lot where John is telling Rodney to stop talking because it hurts. It's not physical pain. John is emotionally devastated by the immense loss he feels at meeting his, his guide because he could have met him years before if he had not been hiding. So what he has in that moment is is relief and grief and shock and anger and all that's coming at him at once. And he's also a sentinel with a sixth sense. He just can't handle it. And some of it is manifesting his physical pain, but it wasn't because of Rodney of the of actually listening to Rodney's voice. That wasn't what it was about. He needed he needed Rodney's forgiveness. And he got that forgiveness and bonding. So, you know, he found that, that solace that that Rodney pretty much forgave him instantly when he realized that John had been hiding. But, I mean, you had a consequence to, and you dealt with it, obviously, but, but there was a consequence to, to, to John hiding for so long. And because when you're hiding, so you it's hard to, to find your guide. You have to keep that in mind when you're creating your character. If they've been online for a very long time, what they would have been exposed to, what they might be sensitive to. There's a scene later on in the in the in in the story where Hermione is Hermione turns twelve their first year, um, and near the end of the she it's, it's after her birthday, and she had let him know that. That, that the healers in France where she was trained um, told her that she'd probably start menstruating in the next couple of months and she didn't want him to be surprised <laughs> by this information you know, when, when her body started to change because he would notice it and he was like yeah it's okay it's one of the first things that we learn to ignore is, is menstruation and his aunt has 
always been menstruating. So he he's aware of the, this process. And he said, and I'll probably notice your body changing before you do. I'm not going to freak out. <laughs> but, you know, it's important to address that because it would be a thing. Yeah, it would happen. These things will happen. Well, I told you about I plotted that one story. Um that I, I started, I think I started it, but I don't know that I ever got very far with it, where Tony comes online um, later in life. And so he, and he didn't think he would be um, a Sentinel. He thought he, his, he would never come online. So he didn't have a lot of the training. And one of the first things he encounters as coming online is he, his next door neighbor is a, has very heavy menstrual periods. And he thinks she's been murdered. So oh, bless <laughs> he, his heart. he like breaks down her door. <laughs> she's been dying and she's just got her period so um i mean that's forgivable i mean because yeah some of us bleed a lot (laughs) it happens it happens but she her she she understands you know in the story the story she understands that he is what, what he was trying to do but she tells him that you know that his penance for this whole thing is he has to help train other young sentinels. <laughs> so it's something he does on a regular basis is teach the classes um, about uh, respecting, you know, ignoring what you're smelling and respecting people's privacy. And we don't talk about people, about to people, women about being on their period. Um, and now we have, you know, a, a volunteer who's going to come in. We're going to learn what a woman on her period smells like so that you can respect her privacy and be, you know, and, he deals with he does this this class as part of his ongoing um co- re- re- it's recompense it's recompense it's, rec- it's, it's more comp- you know it's recompense for for busting in on her <laughs> thinking she was dying i thought she was being murdered <laughs> well sometimes my period feels like murder so does that count menstrual blood does smell different but for someone who doesn't smell that smell in particular, um, who all, but it also doesn't know the difference between what fresh blood and old blood smells like, probably wouldn't make the distinction. Yeah, especially someone who's never been around blood very much and who is suddenly thrown into hypersensory acuity, right? All you know is you're smelling blood. So, um, I would think Sentinels would have to, I mean, the thing is, I think you would very quickly learn to make the distinction, but if you've never smelled it before, you wouldn't know. And honestly, this is graphic, but my blood smells different based on the time of the the part of my cycle. Like, the first blood that I usually shed during my cycle is very dark and um, obviously very old. But near the end of my, um, my bleed, um, it gets really bright, fresh red. So, it would also depend on where the woman is in her cycle. Yeah. And a sentinel would learn this very quickly, right? All they have to do is work with a woman for, for, for a week, which she's on, you know, that week that she's on her period, and go, okay, I got the distinctions and the smell. I got it. And But it would be part of their training to just learn to ignore some things, right? And it, also, you'd have to learn to ignore things like you know, this. I see this thing at this in werewolf stories, too. Um, is I don't think if if you could smell attraction, think about it. People get turned on at the stupidest shit, right? People will be smelling like attraction all the time. So just like just because somebody smells like attraction whenever they're around so and so doesn't actually mean they want to jump them. 
It just may mean they think they have a really nice set of shoulders. <laughs> it's just like, I, mean, I, would think, I would think as a sentinel or a werewolf, one of the first things you would stop paying attention to is the scent of attraction. But it's like, I don't get it. Every single freaking time they got milk commercial on, he smells like he's got a heart on. No judgment, dude. Milk does it for you. Um, I just think you would just learn to ignore it. I think you probably wouldn't learn to ignore smells like everyday body smells um, just as part of being a functional sentinel in, in order to work with your gifts that you would have to start to ignore regular body smells. Menstruation, um, uh, most sweat, uh, you have to differentiate between like exercise and stress. Um, and yeah, flatulence. I mean, these are these are just smells that you would have to dismiss. And that's why one of the reasons why it's my head, yeah, it's my head cannon. That the way I work with it is that they basically learn to filter out smells. It's sort of like when you go into a room and a lot of people are talking, and you're able to pick out the the one voice in that room that you know. If you can do that with with mundane sensory control, right? With just what we can do as humans, when you've got extreme abilities, right? You, in order to survive, you would have to be able to filter things out. Otherwise, it would just be an assault. Um, I think when it comes to a child guide, depending on what kind of world um, world building you assign to your world and um, their abilities that one of the first things that your child guides should learn is the ability to shield themselves. Mm -hmm. To protect their emotional well-being. Because um, I, have a, I have a story that's not published um, where Rodney is a guide and John has come to Atlantis um, because they are a perfect genetic match. And they're kind of like feeling each other out. They're in the courtship phase. And um, Rodney has been online for a long time. Uh, since his, you know, since college. Um, and most people on the city did not know he was a guide. He kept it to himself. Um, because, he did, because he didn't want Weir to misuse him. And, 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 and felt that she would give him the opportunity. Um, and... One of um, the mundane soldiers that he's talking to during, during this conversation asks him, what's it like to be a guide? And he said, imagine you're a sponge and someone drops you in a bucket of water. And none of them knew how to deal with that. Because they asked him why he would want to bond at his age. Because um, he's been doing so well on his own, you know, why would he want a sentinel? And, um, and he said, you know, if, if, if you're that sponge, and life is that bucket of water. The only refuge you have is a sentinel. Um, and to you know, to bond with a sentinel is um, is empathic protection because all your empathy goes into maintaining them. So there's no room for anybody else. There's no room for anything else. And uh, so yeah, that was just um, that's that's also the fic where there are spirit guides manifest on their back as tattoos and John's is a dragon and nobody on the city had seen Rodney's and he goes through some exercises with John and he pulls his t-shirt off and they find out that Rodney is a phoenix. Oh, nice. 
I remember you talking about the dragon. Um, or the other way around. It's the blossoms that opened it up. Um, but uh, no, I remember you. I remember you talking. I think that Rodney might have been the dragon, and that John's the phoenix because it is my headcanon that John's um, um, call sign is phoenix. I think that's you. Yeah, I could have sworn that you talked about a story where John could shift into his spirit guide form and and that it was a dragon. Or maybe that was Harry Potter. I don't know. I may be conflating your ideas. <laughs> it, it, it could happen to the best of us. Um, I, I, one of the stories I've plotted... Um, no, they, they move, yes. They move out of the body and, and solidify like the spirit animals in canon. They live in their skin. So I plotted several. I've, I've plotted several stories for next November, but one of the stories I plotted for next November has Tony Denozo coming online when he's eight as a guide, and um, in that one, it is problematic for somebody. I did. I, it's in the plot that it's very problematic for somebody to be online, and and it, it sets him in a position potentially to be abused by his con man father. And I actually think, in some ways, it's more problematic for young guides than it is for young sentinels because I think that you know a manipulative family member could hide a young guide, yeah, potentially, um, if they, especially if they could keep them away from sentinels, and and really abuse their gift, um, and potentially even. You know, if, if the child isn't really taught shielding, it, it isn't taught how to shield emotions pretty well, that it could be really problematic. And you could do world building that could be really damaging to a child who comes online young. Um, but anyway, he's he's um, he's taken to some people who teach him how to completely hide who he is and what he what he can do, because it's actually well, it's it's, it's somebody who's. It's his. Uh, it's the. Um, I think. I think in the one. I actually have two versions of this. And one of them is a housekeeper, and in the other one, it's a friend of his mother's. But I think it's the housekeeper in this one who takes him to her her family, um, who know how to work with. And I actually have in this case the family coming from Peru um, to kind of do that tie back to canon and help teach him how to hide awesome tie back. Yeah, how to teach him how to, to hide. Um, the level of gift that he has as a child so that he is um, can't be used by his father in a, in a dangerous way. And they teach him and she tells him and they advise him that he needs to look for his moment to get away from his father. And he needs to look for that moment to reveal what kind of, you know, the guy kind of guide he is. And, and he chooses it. He waits and he learns how to wait and watch. And his moment comes when he's in Hawaii and his father forgets him. And he calls, he calls for Sentinel guide help. So, um, the other side of it is, is that if you put a sentinel and guide, a, a guide child in a situation where they are fight or flight, they might learn some really fucked up methods of dealing with that. Yeah. Well, in this case, when I say eight, Tony's, Tony's, um, he, di- he comes online when his mother dies. Um, because in this story, in this in this plot, it's because he's with her when she dies, and he comes online, and so it's very traumatic for him. But that's why the first person to get to him is somebody who, because I have him living in kind of a remote area, so it, his his distress is being broadcast out, and so his housekeeper 
feels his distress and gets to him and is able to shield him um, and get him away from there before anybody finds out what happened. So she gets to him quickly and protects him. Um, because I, I do think it's a very traumatic. I, I did want to, you know, I figure, I figure actually it's my head canon that children who come when they, when, when guides come online young, it is due to traumatic circumstances. Um, that there is no natural path for, for a child guide that it, it would, it I would agree. I think it has to be trauma or, um, yeah. Trauma. So with Sentinel, maybe, maybe a threat or trauma. Yeah, Sentinels I see more coming online for, for threat. Depending on the type of trauma, it could actually push them into being dormant rather than coming online. Um, but my headcanon is that a child guide would only come online as a child in traumatic circumstances, which is why it is, would be such a big deal. Um, and that there would be a lot of protocols around how to handle that. Um, so anyway, so... I, I would just never, I would personally never write a natural path to a guide coming online as a child. I just wouldn't do it. There's going to um, be a child guide in Sentinels of Atlantis. He's from another planet and he was um, basically beaten to death by his uncle. Um, he, won't, he won't ever remember that because um, the ascended Sentinel and guide pair, they took him. That they He was coming online um, in the moments that he died and they took him. Um, before he died. Uh, so he's not. He's he's on the ascended plane. But they healed him and he lived. Um, he doesn't remember what happened to him. But he is online. And they well, can't fix that. And, and, and he's Andy's guide. And, and he will eventually come to earth. So I. Now I would not. I think it's. I think a child sentinel is more probable than a child guide. Through some sort of natural means. Because I think a child sentinel. Like a late sentinel. Um, if there was threat, it would come online anyway. Um, In Beautiful and Dangerous Things, Lady Holder and I had um, uh, Sherlock come online. Um, was it like their house was robbed and their father was killed? It was like a home invasion. Yeah. And, he, and he's a sentinel. Yeah, and I could see, I could, I could see a path to, because to me, um, but that, to me, that's kind of an that is that is a combination of threat and trauma. But I, to me, a, a sentinel coming online to, in response to threat is is it would be a natural way for a sentinel to come online. Um, that's what they're biologically engineered to do. Would be the way I would write the world building. Which is why they'd want to protect latent sentinels when they're young to try to make sure that they don't experience threat that would push them online right. too early. Because that's a recipe for But it, I but. do think that if uh, a sentinel or a guide does come online as a child, that their circumstances, you would want your world building to reflect their circumstances being heavily investigated. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's like, why is this, why is this, this this child online what what happened either way whether it's a sentinel or a guide if they come online early that they would be a lot of scrutiny into what did what caused this because it doesn't just happen i would think natural disasters probably would bring sentinels online even if they're young 
Yeah. But I don't think it would, br- I could see it bringing more adult guides online, but I don't think it would bring more, because I could see, the way I would write it is that the an influx of sentinels due to, due to threat, like an alien invasion, a natural disaster, whatever, would cause a surge in guides coming online, but not child guides. No. Even if you had child sentinels, it wouldn't, I don't think you'd bring child guides online. You might have a, a, a higher number of teenagers or something, and I'm not trying to encourage, that. I say that, somebody's going to jump to the conclusion that I'm talking about really mismatched age pairings but i think that please that the, don't i'm not the i'm thinking the ebb and flow I'm of how, them out there yeah. not you i know you wouldn't <laughs> i'm thinking the ebb and flow would would need more guides to act in a conservatorship capacity for these younger sentinels until they're older and can find um an appropriate you know guide of an appropriate age to bond with um but I just, I think it's one of those cases of like if I would write the world building is where it's sort of where nature take nature has a way of working, which is that a child sentinel coming online as a response to threat could happen, but a child guide coming online actually would make things worse. And so I don't think nature would, right, would do that. In um, the awakening, um, several children come online in response to the murder of a of a wolf guide, um, but they are. They were already empathically sensitive, and her trauma forced them online. Mm-hmm. So it it wasn't a natural occurrence, so something that should have happened to them at all. And the Sentinel and Guide community immediately converge on this situation to make it better. You know these these children are being put um, into classes. They're you know there's an immediate response because they know these kids are really vulnerable. And in the case of um, how I would work that in all these these elements in, it's like if the situation is threat and trauma kind of situation, well, under threat, if if children start coming online as guides, any actually any guides coming on, the, re- the way I stagger it, which is like sentinels come online in response to the threat, and then there's a surge of guides later who come online, it's because a bunch of guides coming online while the threat is still there would, would destabilize, make would make things much worse because then all of a sudden every, the sentinels, you know, focus is split, um, tra- traumatized guides are destabilizing things, sentinels are picking up on it, and it's because that's the way I write my world building. So, um, and that's include that. That's not just child guides. That'd be for me, child and adult. So when there's an active threat happening, um, I wouldn't. The way I would write it, I wouldn't have like a worldwide threat or an environmental threat or an area threat. But if it's a personal threat, that would be an entirely different circumstance. Yeah, to me, that's trauma though. So like if something yeah. that is is damaging potentially to you, that's a traumatic circumstance. But like an alien invasion, which is how I wrote it in in um, Stick Around is there's a surge initially during, you know, the invasion of Sentinels coming online. Um, guides start coming online in waves later. And it's part of the natural ebb of, on the psionic plane, normalizing itself. Is mm-hmm. There's been a surge in Sentinels, the psionic plane normalizes by pulling more guides online. But it is, oh, it's, 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 it's a multi-step process. It doesn't happen all at once. Darts is something I find really interesting and in that women come online at a higher percentage of the latent population than men due to the threat of sexual assault. I think in reality that there probably wouldn't be a whole lot of latent women. Due to the length of this podcast, it has been split into two parts.